Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Matt Newman, filmmaker and director of technology for the ASC. Today, I'm at our historic clubhouse in Hollywood with Jakob Ehr, FSF, to discuss his work on the critically acclaimed HBO and Sky miniseries, Chernobyl. Born in Sweden, Jakob started his career in camera work in documentaries as well as fiction projects, primarily produced in Europe. His recent feature credits include The End of the Tour, Quitters, Louder Than Bombs, and Thelma. In early 2018, Jakob began photographing the historical drama Chernobyl, created and written by Craig Mazin and directed by Johan Rank. The miniseries revolves around the infamous nuclear disaster of April 1986 and the extraordinary cleanup efforts that followed. Principal photography took place in Lithuania, with additional scenes shot in Ukraine. Filming took 16 weeks. Many of the crew and extras on the projects were from the former Soviet Union or Europe and lived through the Chernobyl disaster, including Jakob, who was 10 years old when the disaster occurred. Chernobyl was nominated for 19 Emmy Awards, winning 10, including outstanding directing, writing, editing, music composition, and outstanding limited series. For his work behind the camera, Jakob earned the Emmy for Outstanding Cinematography for a Limited Series or Movie. Chernobyl was his first fiction television project. As mentioned, the following interview took place at the ASC Clubhouse during construction on the new ASC Area Education Center, so you may hear occasional construction noise in the background. This interview was recorded just days before Jakob would go on to win his Emmy. Hi, my name is Jakob Ire. I'm the cinematographer on Chernobyl. Let's start with television. You're used to shooting features, and did you say this is your first television project? It's my first uh, television project uh, or drama project. I've done uh, documentaries before for television and, and even uh, drama documentaries. When I was 20, 21, I did uh, kind of crime reconstructions for Swedish television. But after that, I haven't uh, done any television, and uh, I was focusing on the, on the big screen, so to speak. Tell me a little bit about the reception, because obviously Chernobyl is a great piece that's getting a lot of great attention as it deserves, but what's it, what's it like having something with this type of eyeballs on it? No, it's, it's incredible, the reach. It, it's, uh, I never experienced anything before that suddenly my neighbor comes out of the door in the morning and says he saw three episodes last night, and then I get a call from India, from uh, friends over there who same night had seen you know, all episodes. And, and so the reach has been incredible. And also, you know, every film you do, every project you do, you, you, know, you wish that you can start some uh, dialogue and make people reflect on life or what's happening in the world. But in this case, it's been also a political effect, it, not just entered people's hearts, but it also entered people's minds in terms of how to change the world or how, how is the world looking today and, and what can we do about it. And, and uh, so that's been you know, really incredible. You guys did so much research for this project. How much time went into this project even before it got to your hands? I'm not exactly sure how long, you know, Craig Mason in this case, how long he's been writing on the project, but I'm sure it's been many years. I heard five, six years. But for us, it was a, almost a four or five months pre-production time. 
but also for us Scandinavians or, or Europeans who were very close to the accident, we've been living with it since it happened. And you know, I was 10 at the time. Of course, it's been with us since then. Tell me more about that, having grown up with Chernobyl as a life experience where you were 10 years old. Yeah. Well, I was so young, I guess, but I, I, I do remember that, we, that my mother gave me and my sister these kind of tablets. And I think I thought it was kind of floor tablets at the time, but it was iodine tablets. We were not allowed to eat meat for many months and nothing from the earth, so to speak. So we had to be very careful, but I don't remember that much of it. But of course, it put a stamp on our childhood and made a mark for the rest of our lives. So when you first got the script, what were your first thoughts? How did it come about? It was a year ago or more, I had a film called Selma, which was premiering in New York. And uh, Johan Renk, the director of Chernobyl, he lives in New York. So I had you know, mentioned it to him, that please go and see and support this film, which will have a kind of limited release in New York. And we have known each other, we never worked before, but he mentioned that, by the way, I have this show coming up. And uh, so then we met in London, I met with the producers, and um, of course it's a project that you can't really say no to, even though it's such an extreme project and the length of it. So, you, you know, at first you almost want to say no, because it's, it's, it's too much to handle in terms of it with families and to stay away for such a long period. It's a big undertaking and, and, um, and you notice that on everyone on board that everyone had made a big choice to do this film and to um, live a simpler life back home and to, you know, to invest in this and, and to give you everything into this project. Because it was not just a drama to tell, but an assignment, a mission to tell the world what happened and that it shouldn't happen again. So it was a big undertaking in many ways. How did that responsibility feel like? I mean, when you, when, you, when you saw it, did you feel that right away? Was that something you knew? This was a responsibility to tell the story. Of course you feel a responsibility, you know, towards Craig, who's written this amazing script and, and all the time he had put into this. But then, of course, like I said, to, you know, to, to mankind almost. We had some, you know, big scenes with extra. We had over five, six hundred extras. We were shooting in Lithuania and in Ukraine, and, and uh, many of the extras that we had on set came up to us, often with tears in their eyes, saying that, you know, we were part of this, and we're glad that you're telling this story. And, you know, I was one of the liquidators, or my son was sent out there, and he never came back. And, and I mean, it was uh, horrifying stories. And, you know, they said all this wearing the clothes, you know, of the time, and, and, uh, and so, you know, you're often living it, you know, it was a one-to-one -one experience uh, of, you know, we were creating something. But then, of course, we found the real people there as well. What's that like where you're dealing with this kind of subject matter and then literally the people with personal experience with it are yeah. on set helping you make it? No, it's strong and, and that, that makes you also understand that you, you know, you really have to do this correctly and you have to show the, you know, the utmost respect to everyone involved. I mean, because um, some other people, you know, live this. You, you can't mess this up, you can't take this as entertainment. You know, people have been talking about the script being a page-turner, and it is, but also you feel almost ashamed of it being a page-turner. As I mean, this horror shouldn't fascinate you, but it does. And you get into it, and you get excited to tell the story, but then, of course, you're holding off and say, okay, let's be <laughs> even more mature and, and careful about this, how we take this path and tell the story. When you first looked at it, was there a clear sense of how you were going to take it one step at a time? Johan, the director and I had a lot of time together and we had this very extensive uh, scout so we traveled around in Lithuania and in Ukraine and we spent a lot of time together and in that process your ideas, they come up and they also change. So we talked about shooting this film at first with anamorphic lenses and we thought of even creating um, 
kind of a mechanical heavy machinery feel to the film by also shooting with a with a mechanical shutter with the Alexa studio so the combination of the studio and the anamorphic lenses would symbolize the machinery of the Soviet Union so that was an early thought we had and uh, you know every time you come to a to a new foreign country you always you know want to uh, show your respect towards the the local filmmakers and coming to the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union the king of cinema was or is Andrei Tarkovsky. I mean, he's done some amazing films and The Mirror is one of the highest possible uh, form of art almost. But uh, he did one anamorphic project, which was Andrei Rublev. And uh, being anamorphic, that was, uh, you know, for a moment uh, kind of a reference for us, but then we went another way. We are realizing that once again, we should have a more of a humanistic approach. We should not become the apparatus. We should try to become the, the individual and do more of an intimate portrait of each person involved in this. So then we sidestepped from that approach and went into the world of spherical lenses and lighter cameras and a more of a, a subtle imprint somehow. What lenses did you use for this? Yeah, so in the end we used uh, spherical lenses and we had thought of, you know, going anamorphic, but we felt to use spherical would be more honest in a way, would be less um, stylized. And we had did a lot of tests and, and at first the idea was let's go with lenses which are as normal as possible, that don't give an imprint, that don't do anything basically, as neutral lenses as possible. So we were, had that kind of strong idea, but then we discovered actually that the that they cook pancros, the ones that we thought would be, um, would be wrong for the project at first. In theory, they had that soul or they had the, the imprint that we were looking for. So those were old pancros, which were not uh, rehoused. They were, they were really old ones and they were all uh, very different in look, but they created the world that we wanted to, to, uh, yeah, to achieve. Now, what was interesting, when we shot those lens tests, we did it um, in Berlin, at Ari Berlin, in their in the engineering room, which was not a very kind of visually attractive room, but we ended up shooting there and we did eight different lenses and, and we did a kind of blind test. I did a blind test on myself where I said, okay, what do I like here? And, and suddenly I picked test number five and then, and then I took the same test and, and showed it to, to Johan, the director, and uh, he also said, oh, five feels right. And, and that was, you know, the, the pancros. And, and in and, and some way I almost got you know, disappointed with myself because you know, we wanted to be as honest as possible and we didn't want to put any, any layers between us and the, and, the, and the characters, meaning we want to shoot with as a pure lens as possible, which would have been a more modern lens. And, and that's what I was really hoping that that would you know, be the right for the, for the project, but in the end, like I said also, we wanted to create Chernobyl as a world which had been twisted, warped, distorted. And I think those cooked pancros, they distorted it. We were able to enter the world that we wanted to create through those lenses and, and still get the connection with the, with the characters. Tell me a little bit more about those decisions. I mean, that's a lot of intuition. And even though Johan and I haven't worked together before, we are both from that background, or we had both done many projects where, in my case, at least I worked with directors who like to create a rhythm in the mise-en-scene by, by using different techniques within a scene, handheld dolly within the same scene. And, and Johan has also done that in some of his projects. And, it was not a choice, it was just a matter of, as we can't stylize this project, we just have to be ourselves and, and be a kind of a fellow human being somehow. 
And by being that, we, we should just try to visualize it, uh, what comes natural to us. So we share that uh, approach. Um, and also the, in terms of lenses, we, we both use the, the 40 millimeter and the 50 millimeter a lot, and we try to stay away from wide-angle lenses, or from, if that's called a classical look. I, I'm not sure, but the, the, we both share that a lot. So it, it was a lot of um, kind of ideas, or the DNA in both of us it was quite similar, which helped a lot the, the, the process and the way we work together. But as for the um, as for the close-ups, yeah, they, they are very important in the film, where we stop and and and. Um, and look at the person in front of the camera, and, and even the person we're looking at is looking at his own situation, and, and, and those are moments where, which are the strongest in the film, where they really contemplate, and, and they, you know, the, the, the storm is happening around them, but they are still and, and looking down and thinking, you know, something was going on, and, and those moments were, were really important, and Often those shots are also, in the edit, they're also longer often than the wide shots. They, they, they get more seconds than the wide shots. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that Johan and the editors you know, took care of these shots so well. Oh, that's, that's a great point. Film is a group project. I mean, there's so many incredible talents all at once doing their, their part to make something that is ultimately larger than any of the individuals. And tell me a little bit about that in terms of when you were shooting for post, how were you thinking about what you were doing in terms of how it was going to end up? Well, we, we tried to do as much in camera as possible. And like I said, we had a very tight group of people and in terms of our VFX supervisor. He was with us every day for all these months. And in the end, it became you know, us. It was not that we were giving it to them. We did, but I guess we were all aware of our choices. And it was not in camera against post. We were all you know, together on this. But I like to do as much as possible in the, in the camera. And, and it, same as the VFX advisor. He always says, do it in the camera if you can. But of course, uh, a lot of it done in VFX. And we had a great uh, color grader, Sir Jean-Clément Sauré, who I worked with before and so has Johan on, on different projects so it was great to have him around and but still we, we tried to have a lot or a kind of look in the camera which we was hoping for we could embrace all the way until the final result. There are so many wonderful muted colors they felt dynamic. Tell us where that came from. In terms of the color it's always starts of course in the, what's in front of us and, and the production designer and, and, the, and the costume designer really create that world and they were very try to be as accurate as possible to the time and the camera really has hoped to ex expose that and, and, and we will have the look so to speak for the film but also I was trying to to find the look for how does Ukraine at the time look like and 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 I was very fortunate that back in 2001, I was doing a, a documentary that became a feature in the end of three parts where we did the first part in Odessa in Ukraine. And that was a project shot on 16 and, and, um, and that was shot in, in, on the streets of Odessa with real people. So to me, the, in order to create real uh, Ukraine or the, you know, Chernobyl at the time, for me, uh, my reference was the reality I experienced all those years back. Um, and that was a project which we happened to shoot on, on um, with a very strong storm filter. It was called Storm. It was like a cyan blue greenish filter. But in my memory, I had almost forgotten about that filter. For me, the, the world was still that blue green world. So when we stood there on the streets of Kiev, the, what I saw through the camera was not a reality to me suddenly. I needed to add um, a certain, you know, a lot um, to the camera, which 
made that reality for me. And so we, we were leaning a lot against that lot to create the reality that we thought was Ukraine at the time. You have to decide what is your reality, and, and the reality of Chernobyl was a very warped reality. It was almost surrealism in the end. I mean, we, we often said that the, the world after the accident is a broken world. And to create reality, you have to decide on, you know, what is your reality? And, and for Chernobyl, it was a surreal world. It was not, it was reality, but that reality had been altered after the blast. Um, we often tried to create a world in Chernobyl where, where things were not, uh, you know, as it seemed. Uh, almost like the elements had changed. You know, there are many scenes around the reactor where you know, the lights are flickering and in some cases even the atmosphere is flickering somehow. So things are very unstable and, and, and the light in Chernobyl embraced double shadows. Of course these are all very subtle points but we try to make a world that things are not as it seems. So often the sun was coming in and out of clouds within the scene. And, we had odd reflections coming from various objects and, and we just wanted to create something which was you know, unstable. So that was the, the reality to us. I think you can take the audience into that. You can make this world a reality too if you are very sure about yourself. Tell me about that with your use of the sun. It's, we had a big reference uh, which was in the murals of the Soviet Union and some of them depict the nuclear or the radioactive atom together with you know, the workers standing next to it and hand in hand they are creating this new world. And, and some of those murals are showing the atom as almost as a sun or as a star with, it, you know, with, it, with its rays. So for us, how do, we, you know, how do we portray the enemy? How do we portray this, this atom? And, uh, and especially when it's invisible, you, know, you can't see radioactivity, it's just, you, know, you just feel it after a while. And so to us, it was more of a guideline for me and for the, you know, for my gaffer, Tobias Hendrickson, how to how to light each scene. So it was not as a fog in a, in a horror movie, but to us, the sun became you know, the symbol of the radioactivity. So often, the sun in in Chernobyl, especially when it's close to a dangerous area, like the roof of the reactor, the sun is very present. And when you're in the shade, you're almost protecting yourself from the radioactivity and. So the sun, and in this case, the sun was often very, you know, overexposed in order to kind of create a, almost a threat of it. So that was our guiding line throughout the five hours that the sun should um, be the menace, should be the danger in, in the scenes. We had crew members who, who told us who, that they had been told by their, you know, by the parents not to step out and especially not when it rains and certainly not when the sun is out. And one of those reasons was that they thought that maybe that the particles being, or the dust being backlit by the sun, they thought that that was a relativity, what they saw in those rays. So somehow the sun became something dangerous, or the rays of the sun be something that you should stay away from. So I guess we took that along and, and used that as our tool and, and how to give a kind of an arc to the storytelling in terms of um, radioactivity and the sicky people get often they get just more and more overexposed as well by the sun. So we, we did that a lot and of course it's not meant to be, to be seen that way but it hopefully it's felt somehow or at least it, it helped us to, to light it correctly and not just light it for the time of day or for taste but also this kind of idea of the symbolism that really helped us I think how to light each scene and how to light the people. 
And once again, it just helped us to know which gears we should use and how to use the sun throughout. The first time we see Legasov in the film is he wakes up in Moscow and, and in the morning after the accident and you see that the sun fades in. The sun fades in through the curtains and from being lying in the, in the shade or in the dark in his bed, the sun rays just hits him. And once again, it's a kind of naturalistic scene. The idea once again dictated us to let's imagine that the radioactivity has with the sun traveled from Chernobyl to, to Moscow and is now entering his life. And from now on, he's, um, he's being touched by radioactivity. I really love that in terms of having some kind of visual representation of something that was invisible. Also maybe worth mentioning the hard light. I mean, we're talking about now when we're here in the temple of, <laughs> in the church of, of light, is that um, there's a lot of hard light in the film, and, and especially in the interiors where we're having practicals. And, and we found out that the, um, that the bulbs, they were all clear glass at the time. They didn't have frosted bulbs. And so that often gave a, a harder light, and, and we tried to mimic that. And also the lampshades were not often cloth lampshades, it was often just a hard metallic shade. So the light was often kind of hardly bounced into something or it was kind of a hard bulb hitting the actor. So that, that was once again something where our research kind of put uh, its mark on, on how to, to light things. And same thing was, uh, you know, when we were shooting in all these kind of military camps with tungsten sources, somehow we were concerned that it would start to look like a period film, like a World War II one film. But then we also found out, of course, that you know, a lot of fluorescent tubes were used at the time. And even in people's you know, living room, there were fluorescent tubes mixed with a tungsten source. So, so, um, so I'm glad that that research that we did or, you know, that was told to us really made an impact on, on how to light the scenes correctly, at least, you know, at least to us. And you have used you've so much incredible shadow work in this. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you used the shadow. Yes, I mean, the, the, the shadows were in some way the, our you know, friend. I mean, with this approach we had that you know, the sun was the, the, the danger. It was in the, in, the, in the shade that they could hide and, and, um, and stay away from it all. But of course, the shadows were often interfered by the sun, which was coming in and out of shot. The specific scene, I'm thinking, um, when the three volunteers go down, that's an interesting one because it's one of the, there's no sun. And then the light is almost like the, the last vestige of, of yeah. safety as they drop out, as they get in, and the radioactivity starts to affect them. Yeah, that was a very hard scene to shoot. Technically, it was hard to shoot, but also how do we tell the story of the invisible monster or the invisible enemy? And what are they scared of? Because we never see it. We don't even see a, you know, give a hint of it. And so that was hard to tell. And you know, we don't even see the, the protagonists. They are hidden with their masks on, and, and we can't hear them even. So it was an, almost an impossible scenario to, you know, to tell the story and what are they running away from. And, and of course, we, you know, we had the help of the dosimeter to hear the sound. And when that was increasing, the danger was coming closer, but it was still very hard. And of course, we had these torches that we were controlling with iPads and, um, and they were fluctuating. And you know, the, the big torches died and then the small um, dynamo torches uh, came on and, and it was... Um, Quite an impossible scene, you know, technically, but also, you know, to, to tell it correctly. And but and I'm, I'm surprised that people are so taken by it because I thought I, I don't know if we told the story right when I, you know, after we shot it, it was Johan and I, the director. We looked at each other, you know, did we really? What have we told here, really? 
Tell me a little bit more about the torches and the iPad setup. Yeah, I mean, throughout the film, so many of our units are flickering. I mean, everything is flickering in, in Chernobyl, and, and uh, which we control through um, dimmer boards and, and through you know, iPads. And in this case, the, uh, the torches were all you know, linked all with a Wi-Fi um, to our um, dimmer board. So they were all, you know, all flickering, and, and then, of course, they switched to these... Um, dynamo lamps which were hand pushed or hand generated which of course would be hard for the actors to do that as well so they had to pretend while we were you know digitally you know making the levels up and down yeah so that was a hard one it was a hard one yeah it sounds like a dance i mean really really heavily coordinated and and um the, the you guys as the camera being part really part of the action yeah yeah for sure we were all you know standing in water up to the you know <laughs> how is that it was a, you know, it was a labyrinth. It was an amazing set, which was all filled with water up to, um, up to the neck almost. And we had amazing sparks who were standing there with, with their bounce cards and with their small LED units to mimic the, the flickering bounce from the uh, torches. So yeah, it was a, it was a tough dance. One of the things that you'd mentioned this before, there's a horror element to this without being able to see the alien or the scary item behind that. And I think that's that kind of constant dread was really effective. You've worked in horror, you've worked in crime reproduction, you've worked in documentary. I feel like I could see all of those elements in this. Was, how intentional was that? No, we always knew that it was an unknown or, or invisible uh, threat, I mean, or, or the monster, we couldn't see it. Um, so it was all a matter of, of creating a presence of a threat. The challenge was to, you know, how do we portray the monster? How do we show the threat when the threat is invisible? So in the end, the threat was just something that we could feel and you know, we could hear it vibrate. And in this case, the vibration was, of course, the sound design that is not moving forward often. It's just there, kind of tremoring. It's a, it's a tremor. And, and the same thing goes with the light, that the light was often flickering, practice were flickering or or even the atmosphere was fluctuating and the sun was not moving or not always kind of exposing correctly. Something was off. And those kind of elements, hopefully, that created the feeling of that the monster is here or that the threat is here. But light levels, often the light levels or the dynamic range were quite off. We made it, we crushed the blacks a bit too much and made the highlights almost burn out too much, which I normally wouldn't do. But for some reason, we felt that in order to create the, the tremor or to create the, the feeling of that something is not right, that something is behind our shoulders, we felt that technically we would need to you know, break the exposure down or break the world down a bit. And that's horror. I feel like the most effective horror is always when you leave it up to the imagination of the yeah, person yeah. watching it. Yeah, that's true. And you mentioned sound design. How important is audio to you when you're doing your work? I think sound is somehow, you know, it's even more interesting than cinematography almost. I think the, the world of sound is, uh, is um, well, I shouldn't say that here, but, <laughs> but no, it's, it's super, super important and, uh, and super fascinating. And often when I think of the visual beats in a, in a film or, you know, if it's a track or I often see it as a sound. It's about the tone in the scene, the tone in the film, and that's not only the tone of how people talk, but also the, you know, how's the ambience, what is the ambience in the, in, in the scene. And I know the, the power of, of cinematography is so much powered by, by the sound. 
And in terms of the end of the tour, we were very lucky to have you know, the great Danny Elfman uh, writing the score and taking the cinematography into another level or, 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 or a different direction which make the, the visuals uh, pop. I mean, the, we shot the end of the tour in, in, um, in Michigan in the winter and it's grey and, and the snow is brown almost. And, you know, the film is about memory and, and it was shot in that way and, and the cinematography was nostalgic in that sense of shooting actually also with older lenses to make the highlights bloom and to make everything more um, more of a haze and and then Elfman's score really helped us to or helped the visuals to you know to reach that point in terms of Chernobyl I'm so glad the score helped the cinematography to be in, in, in sync with the film or with the characters by having a, a score which is not uh, kind of a melody or you know the normal theme you know in the cinematography in Chernobyl often tries to you know we often hit ourselves on the fingers in terms of we don't want to be too cinematic we don't want to have this too strong of a cinematic language meaning uh, we don't be seen too much and and uh, the camera should not be let loose and discovered the camera should not be overconfident and the, the score does the same the score is you know, you mentioned the dosimeter and doors that are making sounds, and I guess those those um, objects, the composer Hildur Gudna Dotter, she made them into instruments in the end. I mean, I heard that she made actually recorded a, a big, big metallic door at the power plant, which she made into the most beautiful instrument, or, or the sound from it, and she made that into her score. So yeah, she has created the most amazing soundtrack, which. Uh, which is thanks to the director, which is in sync with what, what we created. Speaking of doorways, you did a lot of really interesting framing through doorways, through windows. Tell me about the, that, that choice and, and how, how you made it, why you made it. Yeah, I mean, uh, once again, we, we, uh, we wanted to create a distorted world. You know, some, you know, we are seeing the world or the world after the accident is distorted. And uh, so that was one of the kind of early tools in our dogma, how to shoot Chernobyl was to shoot through things that diffract and that distort this reality. So of course, you know, glass doors and windows, you know, that was all kind of embraced in that sense. And some really spectacular through plastics, um, especially the hospital, the woman's going to see her, her husband and they're telling her not to go in. I don't know how you tackled it in terms of keeping the reflection off of the, the plastics in there, but I, I, I'd love to know more about the tactical decisions in there. That's actually one of my favorite scenes in the, in the show, or it's not a favorite, but one of the strongest is where she enters his room, his plastic, uh, his plastic walls, and she enters his space. We had time to test, and we had a great production designer with a local with an amazing team who was um, who gave us all these options to to test and how do we find the best transparent plastic for a hospital? And um, I think that was almost a mistake that happened that the camera was standing outside the the, the plastic, and I think one of our team, if it was our camera assistant or who just came into that room in front of the bed and she just appeared out of nowhere and that was just a very nice reveal of it. Like you're making the opportunity for magic to happen yeah. and it does. I thought you guys had used miniatures on some of your extreme wide shots and you didn't. Tell me a little bit about these real locations you had and the scale of these locations. Yeah, I mean, we had some exteriors which were incredible in terms of the reality of them. We had access to a, a twin plant, like a twin plant to Chernobyl 
which is situated in, in Lithuania, not far from Vilnius. There, there's a nuclear power plant with two reactors, which are identical to the ones in, in Ukraine, to Chernobyl. And the Chernobyl had four, they were building a fifth, and there was a four that exploded. And, and this one in Ignalina in, in Lithuania gave us permission to, to be there for two weeks, where we did some of our exterior scenes, even some interior shots in the corridors of Chernobyl were shot there, which were identical to... So that was a massive undertaking in terms of logistics, how to work in this enormous area, almost one kilometer long, with cables that have to be wrapped in plastic to protect them from radioactivity, because even this place has uranium, and we were all wearing the, the clothes for it. But once again, that's one of the kind of decisions to be there, of course, helped the production and the production value, but I think it helped the actors immensely to stand on this real ground, you know? And that once again also gave, gave a tone to the team. First of all, you know, we have all this uh, army personnel around us. We have to be careful. And also we are in, in the sister plant of Chernobyl. And let's be careful and let's pay our respects. So what was it like filming in suits? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it was hard, especially when we had to leave from there. When we had to get out of the place after two weeks, we, uh, the lenses were stuck because they were radioactive. So we thought, you know, what's going on here? You know, is the plant leaking? Why are they radioactive? But then, of course, steel for instruments are, have some radioactivity in them. So then they understood that and they you know, gave the lenses back to us. But um, we had, you know, more than kilometers of cables that were wrapped in plastic to protect ourselves from radioactivity. And then we also, you know, built this massive set of, uh, in episode one, where you see the nuclear power plant in, in flames. That was an exterior set which was uh, built around a, a real studio in, outside Vilnius, which almost had the same proportions somehow of, of the reactor, so we could clad it in kind of concrete pads to make it look like the reactor. And as it was in the, in the studio lot, the exterior also had an interior, which was quite unusual. Normally, of course, you just have an exterior and you shoot it, and behind it's just a, nothing, it's a facade. But in this case, the, the exterior went into the interior studio. So if you are a firefighter from the outside, you can walk in and then you can enter the power plant and we could even walk through corridors into the control room. So it was a scary set in that sense that it created reality, an exterior and an interior reality in one. And it also helped our you know, mise-en-scene to make it, to not be so restricted, to be locked off looking one direction. You know, we could really enter and, and treat it, uh, not as a documentary, but we were free as filmmakers to tell it as, as normal as possible. And when you make this film, you're almost pretending that this for real. I mean, you, are, you start by being as, in terms of production design and costume, trying to be as uh, accurate as possible. And by being that, you, you show your respect to the project and then you almost re, sort of reconstruct it somehow and that reconstruction becomes a documentary almost in the end and, and then becomes a reality. And um, you know, we were shooting some scenes, there's a courtroom scene, a trial scene uh, towards the end of the, of the, of the show where, where we have, I mean, it was a trial that happened for real and, and there we had you know, units, film units in shot because they were covering this with video cameras, with TV cameras at the time. So those film units, those lights, old Soviet 1Ks and 650s, they were in shot and they were actually the ones not used for on the trial, but at the time, which we had as our, you know, which was our lighting kit. 
so by lighting it the way it looked and also lighting it with the, you know, the real fixtures makes it, uh, at least for the actors, also make them feel more that we are, this is happening. And I'm sure that, that that helps them a lot to get into, you know, to find their, their character. Can you tell me a little bit about that shot? And there's a big scene, the trial, I don't know how many pages is what it was, but we were shooting that for two weeks, I think. And, and, um, and you have to find an arc to, you know, not to repeat yourself in terms of the mise-en-scene. And so towards the very end of the, of the scene, um, we, have, we have this for the first time, this kind of almost a 360 um, tracking shot, which would feel odd or misplaced if it had been used in the beginning of the trial. But we felt that um, we needed this uh, punctuation towards, towards the end. Well, speaking of that, if I remember correctly, your first intention was to shoot this with a single camera, and you guys ended up doing multi-camera setups. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, despite our kind of combined experience, me and the director, we, uh, we were quite wrong, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, approach was just to use one camera. And that's what I've always been doing, and I've always been operating, and there have been moments where I've had more cameras, but I've always been operating a camera. And on Chernobyl, we were wrong. We realized after a week of shooting, especially when we came to the exteriors, that it's not possible to work this way. We need more cameras to capture all this, but still we want to feel intimate. And we don't want to feel like a multi-camera shoot. But we switched to that, and, and for the first time I was by the monitor. I was operating all the kind of the crane shots, but um, when we had four handle cameras, then I was by the monitor, and um, I enjoyed that a lot, I must say. It was a, good, it was a very good experience. Was that your first time having to work that way? It was the first time not operating a camera, yes. And it felt good? It felt good. I mean, we were, the script was blessed with an amazing director and an amazing camera team who were all in sync, and that worked you know, really, really well. Tell me a little bit more about your camera team, your operators, your ACs, the, your, your, your crew. Who, uh, it was a Swedish camera unit and, and an Estonian um, A-cam operator who was also in the Steadicam, who I just think incredibly good. Uh, it's a new generation of camera technicians which uh, they don't have much of film background, but they grew up with working digitally. And in some way, by growing up that way, there's no need for them to adapt to this way of working. I started out working on film and I have adapted. And in my adaptation, maybe I have have to tweak some of my techniques or I'm not sure but for them at least our first AC uh, Sofia Larsson she um, she has never had to you know tweak or to adjust to a way of working she has grew up working with a digital camera and by pulling focus the way she does so that was interesting to see her at work when I was 18 19 I started shooting on, on beta cameras on, on video and, and, and then it turned into DigiBeta and, and my dream was always to shoot on film. So then I've done that until five years ago it all almost switched to digital and in some way I felt I came back to beta. And what it does really it gives you confidence or gives the crew confidence and it helps you in some way to communicate with the director about what you are doing. And for Chernobyl it was in that sense, it was great to shoot digital, that we all saw what we were getting and we could often take risks that we might not be able to do if we had shot on film. We were taking risks in terms of focus and you can take that risk because you know the second after if it's good or not. And it gives you a momentum and it gives you confidence for yourself and for the crew to take this approach, which might be quite a narrow road, but it helps you somehow. Do you normally work with uh, the same crew or is it, is it often you find yourself working with different crew? Different. Do you enjoy working with new people every time? 
I do. I mean, I um, I do a lot of commercials in between longer projects, and they 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 fly you you know to all kinds of places where you work with the kind of local crews, and and um, well, it's fantastic to work with the same guys that you you know love and that you have a relationship with. But it's always a great chance to learn something great with, by meeting new people. So um, I'm up for both, so to speak. Tell me about your second unit. I know your second unit did a lot of, yeah. a lot of great work. Tell me about your, who was on it and, and some of your favorite work that they did on it. Uh, yes, we, we had a Swedish um, second unit director called Mons Monson and, and a Finnish DOP called J.P. Passi, who uh, did amazing second unit work. And, and they were working often you know, next to us or not, yes, not very far. And I'm not sure how many days they had, if they had 20 or 30 days of shooting, but they did an amazing job. And, and I just re-watched uh, the show recently, or, and I, one of my favorite shots is a shot of Legasov and of uh, Sherbina sitting in the back of a limousine on the way towards the trial. And the camera is, is covering this just through a, a very simple slow pan. Uh, from Sherbina to, to Legasov, and that's also yes, nice to see that the, that the pan was such a strong technique in, in the film. It felt more kind of analog than a track often, that the pan became, was very, often very used to become more realistic and it takes you back to documentaries somehow. So that's one of my favorite shots, but they did amazing work and, and it was fantastic to work with them as well. Yeah, and you had a lot of great drone work as well, both with shots and then also plates for shots. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your drone operators? Yeah, we have many different drone operators from Sweden and, and uh, Ukraine and Estonia and um, even from Lithuania. So it was a great team and often we added, you know, they were really competent and good, but we often added shakes to them. You can see in the film that our you know, drone shots are quite shaky. We added, you know, almost to, to create a feel that it was shot from a helicopter, not from a, from a drone. To, to make it look more of the time, where often I find that the drone shots, if it's shown in a, in a period film or, or in Chernobyl, would, you know, it would be a, too of a modern tool to, to use for the film. But, but they did a great work, and I'm, I'm sorry if we messed up their shots sometimes by adding, <laughs> adding shake to them. Speaking of the helicopter shots, by far one of my favorites is in the beginning when they're, they're going to the site for the first time, and your use of strobes inside the helicopter to make it feel like it was flying. Had that something you'd, you had tried before? Was it the first time you had done that? Well, I, I worked a lot with strobes, with lead strobes on, on a film called Thelma, where we, uh, also a drama horror film, where we worked a lot with strobes. And, and that technique we used in that film was very helpful for many different scenes in Chernobyl, and especially one with, the, with all the helicopters, interior helicopters, where we had access to an airbase in Ukraine. And we had this, uh, these real helicopters, um, which we were not allowed to you know, fly with, but we could be in them. But we had to be super ready to clear the set in order something would happen and they would fly off. So we had to you know, create a very small footprint around the helicopter. It was a live air force. Yeah, it was a live, yeah. And, and they are at war at the same time. You know? so, um, and then, of course, we had to create you know, the, the feeling of, or the illusion of, of movement. Often that the, you know, we are turning towards the sun and away from the sun, but we had our HMIs on tracks. But also, how do we create the, the, the rotor blade flicker? And in the past, I've used you know, old, you know, cycle wheel or similar effects. But in this case, we added lead strokes, which we had like a circle around our 18 case. And, and that created the interior flicker from the rotor blades. Was there any equipment that you used on this that you've used your entire career, maybe that people wouldn't realize that's something that's been like an integral part of your kit? Was there any, anything that stood out? 
I find that the techniques or the tools of the trade they, they keep on shifting, and kind of you have your own kind of flavor of the month what you use. But this this book called The Family of Man, which was created um, in tandem with the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art back in the 50s in New York, and there was a photo exhibition, one of the biggest photo exhibitions ever made about mankind. It was a kind of reaction to the nuclear crisis at the time, so they put together this show where they were displaying the world as as one showing a portrait of a family in, in America and a portrait of a family in China and in Russia and in, and yes showing that this is um, this is us we're all the same and that book was something I've had since since I was a teenager and and as always you know with the greatest photographers their photos are in this book and for every project I, I do I always have you know I always come back to the book to see if there's something and you always find something that kind of inspires you for the project you're doing and for Chernobyl the entire book I mean, the book was made for Chernobyl somehow, and and so so the book and and the photos in that book. I don't know if there were references, but at least there were enormous source of inspiration on on how to make this as humanistic as possible. And so it was quite it was like a full circle in that sense that the book every page this time counted. For me, with Chernobyl, it, it's a portrait of us or of mankind of of this time, and and I've been involved in many projects where you have done a portrait of one individual in crisis or about his family in turmoil. And I felt that this was also a portrait, even though it was a you know, much larger portrait, it was about, you know, about us, about us human beings, how, how we behaved when it happened and, and what, what we did after and how do we stop that from happening again. What are you hoping that somebody who watches Chernobyl takes away from it? Well, to be aware of what's happening around you. It's uh, always been a dream to make people reflect about their lives when, they, when you make a film, but to start a debate like we have done with this one has been just incredible. You couldn't have wished for anything better. Like I said before, this is a project you can't say no to. It's such a great script and amazing people involved. And it's a story which is not a story, it's, it's history. It's about what happened to mankind in, in 1986 and it's kind of still happening. And, and it was super important to be part of that and to do a portrait of that era. And thank you for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. It's always fun. The American Cinematographer Podcast is a production of the American Society of Cinematographers. It is produced by David Williams, Samantha Dillard, and me, Matt Newman. This episode was edited by Samantha Dillard. Audio was provided by Andreas Bermudez. Research by me, Matt Newman. And special thanks to Yako Beer and HBO. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.